to you in the name of God our Father. Amen. So a man calls this house, and the little boy answers the phone with a whisper. Hello? The man says, can I speak to your mommy? The little boy says, she's busy. So the man says, can I speak to your dad? The little boy says, he's busy too. The man's curious, and so he says, is there anybody else there at home? Oh, yeah, the police are here. Now the guy's getting a little bit concerned. He says, well, can I speak to the police officer? No, she's busy too. Is there anyone else at home? He's kind of panicking at this point. The little boy said, yes, the firemen are here. Can I speak to one of the firemen? He said, no, they're busy too. The man's really getting frustrated now, and so he says, young man, what are they all busy doing? And the little boy said, oh, they're looking for me. You know, as we start this new sermon series on the life of Jesus and what he came to this earth to do, this is my very specific prayer for you, that over the next four weeks, you would begin to discover that for your whole life, God has been looking for you, that he has been looking for you. And so over the next four weeks, my prayer is that what you'll discover is exactly what it is that he came to do for you and for me. And the way we're going to begin that is we're going to begin it in verse, or chapter 10 of verse 17 of Mark. And it's just a, one of the parables that Jesus was teaching, or not a parable, one of the stories that Jesus shares. As Jesus went out into the streets, a young man came running up and greeted Jesus with reverence. The word actually means that he knelt down at Jesus' feet. And he asked, good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? Jesus said to the man, why are you calling me a good teacher? No one is good, only God. But you know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, honor your father and mother. But the young man said, teacher, I've been from my youth keeping all these rules. And then Jesus looked at him right in the eye, it says, and it says that he loved him. Now I think it's fair to say as you read through the story that Jesus already knew that this man had not kept all the commandments perfectly. I think that's a safe bet just with about anybody, right? Because there's only one that's perfect, it's God. But what he also noticed is that this guy in particular had something in his life that was more important than God, that was keeping him from experiencing the peace of God's home, of God's love, of God's forgiveness. But we also see how Jesus loved him. He just didn't blow him off. He, he loved him, and he tried to help. In fact, I think that's one of the most extraordinary things about God that you'll ever come to know, and it's this, that he loves you. You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, he knows it all. And the extraordinary thing is that he loves you. And he sent Jesus because he loves you, because he cares what happens to you, and because he wants you to be with him. So Jesus said, well, there's one thing left to this young man. Go sell everything you own and give it to the poor in all of your wealth, and then it will be heavenly wealth. And then come follow me. It says here that the man's face clouded over. It literally means his face dropped. That this was the last thing he expected to hear. He walked off with a heavy heart. He was holding on to a lot of things. He wasn't just about to let go. And as he was leaving, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, do you have any idea how difficult it is for people who have it all to enter into God's kingdom? Then he goes on, he answers his own question. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So today, what I hope we can discover as we walk through these verses is, is that this rich young ruler was holding on to some beliefs about God that just, that just weren't true, that were patently false, that were disrupting his life, that were disrupting his peace, that were disrupting his relationship with God. 
And so, so this morning what I want to do is I want to go through these three belief mistakes that I believe are really, really common in our world today, even as you watch the video. Three belief mistakes that this rich young ruler was making. And then I want to see what we can do to try to avoid making them ourselves. And so let's just kind of look at that. Belief mistake number one. And maybe you've heard this or something like this before. That what I have or who I am is probably enough to have a right relationship with God because, you know, I'm a pretty good person, right? And we've heard different versions of that over the year, but as you read through this story, you know, you have to admit, this guy was pretty good. This guy did have a lot going for him. The story is told in three different books in the Bible, and as you read all three of them together, what you notice is three words keep coming up over and over and over in regards to this young man, that he was rich, that he was young, and that he was a ruler. Those three things are three things that we know about this young man right from the start. First, that he was rich. I often think people read through the Bible and they come across this story and they conclude, the story is saying that money is bad. But that's not what this story is saying at all. There are some problems, certainly, with our attitudes toward money that can be wrong and really unhelpful. But money in and of itself is completely a neutral thing. It's always been the heart behind it that uses it, that makes the difference, right? That determines its course. And so this guy, first and foremost, he had a lot of money, and we're told he was young. I'm not sure exactly why we're told he was young. Maybe just to indicate that he had a lot of potential, a lot going for him. So he had financial resources, he had a bright future, and we're also told that he was a leader. He was a ruler, he was a ruler in that community. And I'm not sure if it was a religious leader or political leader, but this guy had financial resources, he had a pretty bright future, he had a lot of influence. But we also know a little bit more about him as we go through the story. We also know that despite all of this, and it's a lot. He was pretty humble. The Gospel of Mark says that when he came up to Jesus, he fell at his knees right in front of Jesus. And he asked him questions about eternal life. Now, many people, when they would approach Jesus, would do a lot of things, but not all of them would fall at Jesus' feet. Some would try to trick him or argue with Jesus or trap him with issues that they would bring before him. But this rich young ruler comes, and right in front of everybody, he falls at Jesus' feet broad daylight, everybody watching, a ruler in the community, drops to his knees and says, Jesus, I have some questions. And the type of questions that he asked give us a pretty clear description or a pretty clear insight that this guy was also a pretty spiritual young man. Because to be fair, a lot of people who are rich and young, they don't think much about eternal life or what happens after death, sometimes not at all. But this guy wanted to know what happened after he died. He wanted to know that he had eternal life. He wanted to have a right relationship with God in heaven. It was super important to him. We also know that he was a moral man. Jesus counts off four or five of the different Ten Commandments and says, have you, you know, these are some examples. And he responds by saying this, I've kept all of these since I was a little boy. In other words, he had a real good system in his mind of what right and wrong was, of a system of morality that he kept for a long time. I mean, how many of us could looking at these same commandments, say the same thing. Oh, I've kept all those since I was a little boy. Always honored my mom and dad. Always. I've never stolen. I've never lied. I've never kept back from the IRS anything that didn't belong to me. Kind of reminds me of this story. Recently, a telephone call came in a small country church, and the minister answered the phone. The guy on the other end said, is this Pastor Smith? And the Pastor Smith said, it is. The man said, this is the IRS. Can you help me? Pastor Smith said, I can the IRS said, do you know Sam Cowan? Pastor said, I do. Is he a member of your church? 
Pastor said he is. Did he donate $10,000 to your church? Pastor Smith said he will. <laughs> anyways, anyways, I think it's safe to say that this guy had a lot going for him, right? And he could have believed that because of who he was and how hard he was trying, of all that he had, it might be enough to make it to heaven. I'm good enough, or at least he could have said, I'm way better than, than so many others. Or in any other kind of excuse that he would begin to come up with. But Jesus, it says, looked directly at this young man. And the Bible says it lovingly, he corrected him and said, you're still missing something. It's, it's not enough. And so he thought to himself, belief mistake number two, if what I have isn't enough, maybe I can do more to try to earn my way to heaven. Now it's clear from reading the story that this young ruler at least suspected that morality and money and religion had its limitations, that, that it wasn't maybe enough, that he still might do, need to do a little bit more in order to get to heaven. And thus his question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I think it's safe to say that this man understood intuitively that in his life there was something that was wrong. He was not nearly as close to God as he wanted to be. Perhaps he didn't have a word to that problem, but Scripture gives us a word to that problem. That problem is sin. Let me spend just a, just a moment defining what sin is. I think we have a kind of understanding, but let me just go into it. You know, all of us understand that sin includes all of the bad things that I've ever done. Right? And I think, though, that's typically where we stop. We say that's what sin is. It's all the bad stuff that I've done, and that's what I'm apologizing for, and that's what I'm sorry for. But, and it's true, but it's also more. Sin is also all the good things that we failed to do. For instance, the Bible says to be gentle, but every time we're not gentle, God says we sin. The Bible says be forgiving, but every time we're not forgiving or hold on to a grudge, the Bible says we're sinning. The Bible says be patient, and yet how many of us maybe have struggled once in our life with this idea of patience? And so all of us, I think, pretty quickly come to grips with the reality that we have sin in our life, way more, in fact, than we would like. It's why we do confession in the middle of the service, at the beginning of the service, right? To, to give us a chance to come clean before God, to take all that stuff and say, God, we're sorry, and to hear the words that we're forgiven so that it opens up our ears to hear the message. It's an amazing thing that God does. But typically, we don't always come to grips with all of our sin. And so the reality is we know that it's in us. And somehow and sometimes it can feel like there's so much sin in our life that it creates almost like this big wall in between us and God. And at those times, it almost feels tangibly, right, that we can feel the distance between him and us. And I think that's why Paul says the words in Romans 3.23. He just writes what we all experience and he says this. For we all have sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God. Let me see if I can illustrate a little bit what that looks like. The rich young ruler tried all sorts of ways to get to God, right? But it's kind of like trying to jump the Grand Canyon. Some of us can jump a little further than others, but the reality is that in the end, we all kind of end up in the same spot. You're just not going to make it. This guy had tried to get to God by keeping a lot of rules. He had tried to get to God by keeping a lot of the rituals they told him were important. A ritual is something that you do over and over again, hoping finally that God thinks it's enough. He said, I've been keeping these rules since I was a little boy. I've been trying hard, very ritualistic, very moralistic. And it was obvious he was a religious guy and that he cared very much about what God was asking him to do. But again, Jesus says with love in his eyes, that's not enough either. You're still in your sin. 
You need something more. You need a savior. And you need to accept that I am he. And he did, well, kind of. Enter belief mistake number three. He believed, or at least he thought, that maybe I can just trust Jesus with part of my life and that that would be enough. And then I could still be completely right with God. Have you ever been curious why some people can go out on Friday night and get drunk, right, and then come to worship service on Sunday morning at church and not see the discontinuity between the two? Or why a man can sit weekend after weekend next to his wife in services while Monday through Friday he continues on an affair with one of his co-workers and he just doesn't seem to be bothered by it. Do you know why that happens a lot in our culture? It's because in our culture we have come to falsely believe that as long as we give God some realms of our life, there's also other realms that we can keep to ourselves that we can hold on to that don't need to be part of what God gets involved in that God doesn't have to have anything to do with. It doesn't make sense. It's wrong. And it's a mistaken belief that so many fall into. For if Jesus Christ is God's son, and if he died on the cross to prove his love for you, and he rose from the dead proving his identity and his power, wouldn't you agree that he deserves our full devotion? If he's truly the God that we say we believe, the answer is Absolutely. And that's what the Bible says that Jesus wants too. He says he wants to be first in your life. Simply simply this, that he wants all of your life. He wants to be the only one you serve. He wants you to trust him in everything. And that's hard for our control-obsessed, sinful nature to deal with. We like to be in charge. Yet when you come to Christ in a very vivid way, it's like you're surrendering to him. And that's what it looks like. Like you're surrendering to Christ, saying, God, you need to be in charge. I'm going to give you everything. I can't do this anymore. Even if I'm not sure all what this means, I know that you love me, and I know that I need to be forgiven by you, and I know I need you to lead my life because I'm making a mess of it, and I today just want to give you everything. And in that moment, you surrender your will. And then it's not what I want because all of a sudden what I want is to do what God wants me to do. Not that we do this perfectly. I mean, there's always moments where we get pretty selfish along the way. But it's where his will increasingly becomes more and more important to my life. It's where more and more I can trust that he's actually got it, that he actually sees, that he actually cares, that he's actually doing things for my good even when it's hard. Let's see if I can give you an example of this. It was a five-year-old little girl who went to a department store with her mom, and she saw some fake, cheap costume jewelry pearls, and she begged her mom to buy the pearls for her. Her mom says, I don't want to waste my money on that. They're just fake pearls. But the little girl begged, Mom, I'll spend my own money for it. Finally, her mom relented. The little girl reached into her patent leather purse and pulled out every dime she had in the world, two bucks, just enough to cover the cost and the tax for those cheap, fake pearls. The little girl loved those pearls. She wore them to kindergarten, she wore them to play, she wore them in the bathtub, she wore them when she went to bed. She never took them off. A couple months later, her daddy was tucking her into bed, and as he finished, he said, Sweetheart, do you love your daddy? She said, Daddy, I love you. He said, Well, would you give me your pearls? She thought about it for a minute, and she said, Would you take my rocking horse in the corner instead? (laughs) Next night, he was tucking her in again. He said, Sweetie, do you love your daddy? She said, Daddy, I love you. Would you give me your pearls? She said, would you take my dolly instead? 
couple nights later, he was tucking her in, and he was almost out the door, leaving the bedroom. When she hopped out of bed, and in her little fist, balled up, she said, Daddy, I have something for you. She opened her little hand and said, here's my pearls. And he said, sweetie, I've been waiting all week for that. And he reached into his pocket, and he pulled out a velvet pouch and gave her a string of authentic pearls. And he said, I was just waiting for you to give up your dime store stuff so I could give you true treasure. The truth is, your Heavenly Father has been waiting for you for all your life to let go of those things that eternally don't have very much value so that he could give you the treasure of eternal life so that he could show you that it's there. And ultimately, this is why Jesus came, right? To show you that he loves you, to provide for you, so I'll just ask you as I close, what are you holding on to? Is it your past, your present, your future, failures? Whatever it is, I encourage you right now to pray. God, I give you everything. I give you everything. And all God's people said, amen. Let us pray. Father, that prayer is hard. I give you everything. It's a prayer that only can be prayed in trust, sometimes almost only in desperation. And yet we know that's the call to us, to give up control in our life and give it to you, to yield to your truth, to yield to your call, to yield to, to your love for us. And Father, in our heads, we know that that makes things better. We know that that gives us peace and joy and hope Father, our prayer today is that you would help us give everything to you so that we could experience the blessings that you talk about in your word, so that we could experience true forgiveness, so that we could experience Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. amen.